All right, let's get busy. Topics worthy of discussion brought to you by Pizzaville, where we address all kinds of issues du jour. And uh, joining me in that regard to do so, Alyssa Freeman is a PR and pop culture media expert. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, John. Thank you for coming in. Michael Diamond, campaign strategist and political commentator with Upstream Strategy Group. How's Michael? You know, I'm on Pizzaville now. <laughs> yeah, are we sponsored? I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. This particular segment, this particular panel? It's great pizza. <laughs> They're, they're sponsoring the rest of the country. Oh, I no. thought we were kind of special in that no, regard. Well, we are. Okay. We are. We are. We actually are. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you sponsor a country. Tom Parkin, <laughs> columnist with a bluntly social democratic point of view. How's Thomas? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Well, good. you know, we're all watching yearly, I'm sure. Uh, and Tom, uh, I would guess that you would believe that today's midterm election stateside are uh, a referendum on Trump. Would that be about right? Well, you, certainly in part. In part? Certainly in part. I mean, there's always local local factors, local candidates. Uh, oh, there's a huge dynamic, so. But, okay. yeah, obviously well, it's a big play I'm in hard, the whole thing. I'm, I'm hardened to hear that because, you know, I was going to say, for many, uh, on the left anyway, they see this as, because they're projecting that the House will revert to the Dems, and this is the beginning of the end of the Trump presidency because it puts them, well, the agenda gets stalled Maybe. effectively. For, yeah. well, do, you well, see it in that, do you see it in that light? Or is I'm that not a, a bit big on the predictor game. Uh, I think that's, you, you look like an idiot just too often, and you, you just, just, just don't know. Uh Things can change. Um, as you know, from my own perspective, I hope the Democrats win. I hope they take the House, and I hope they take the Senate too, so they can put some brakes on this guy. Uh, obviously, different people will feel differently, and I'm not even an American. But who knows what will happen in the second half of Mr. Trump's turn, and whether the Democrats. Frankly, the other problem is the Democrats. Um, they got to have a candidate for for the presidency next coming soon right and and they got to get their act together but what what do the democrats really stand for they've got a problem in that regard so that's not the issue today but that's an issue that comes up soon all right well uh the issue today has to do with and this is why i was trying to uh get a sense for how you see it certainly from the left that if this is a fatwa against trump or a referendum on his presidency and if it the House reverts to the Dems. It stalls his agenda, effectively uh, killing his momentum and unraveling the presidency. Or is that a narrative that the left wants people to believe, Michael Diamond? You know, for getting a vote out today, if you're a Democrat, that's a, a huge motivation for folks to uh, come out and vote to stop Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know that that will, will work, though. I think if you're Donald Trump, uh, if you're going to run his next campaign, I don't, you know, look at the stock market, look at the job numbers. The last two years have been pretty good. I don't think that's going to continue. If he has a Democratic-controlled Congress to blame when he seeks re-election, I'm not sure that's so bad. So if it's a split house, I think that politically it will set up for uh, fewer results over the next two years. Uh, if he controls the Sen- if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, that's really important uh, to uh, confirm really good, really conservative, really young judges. Uh, that's going to be really important for the Republican base. But uh, having a Democratic Congress to blame, I don't think that's a bad position for this president uh, to be in in two years when he's seeking re-election. You know, it's interesting. Well, playing the fear card, so to speak. Now, late in the game, Trump has been banging on this migrant caravan coming out of Central America, and even Paul Ryan uh, was saying yesterday, or day before, uh, it's about the economy. Kind of shades of Carville back there with Clinton. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, and yet Trump continues to do that. But fear cuts both ways. I mean, folks on the left are also playing the fear card, aren't they, Alyssa? I mean, you were talking about a tweet that's been going around uh that you were reading earlier. Can you share that with us? Okay, well, it just happens to come up right here. So there's this tweet that's actually turning into a meme, and it's really encouraging people, obviously, from the Democrats for people to vote 
Uh, vote like a bunch of school children who were shot and a bunch of other children who were put into camps indefinitely because they weren't white. And like a journalist who was murdered. And like you were being lied to daily by rich liars who harass slash assault women and won't renounce white supremacy. I think this is about the 20 or 21st time I've actually seen this tweet. So, you know, it's interesting because the Democratic narrative has mainly been about health care, pre-existing conditions, and they've kind of been hammering away on that. It's actually the people on the ground who are sort of, you know, resurrecting these type of negative uh, tropes in order to encourage their fellow, you know, their fellow person to get out and vote. So it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a real dichotomy about who was saying what. And I even heard, you know, Trump saying in some interview, I think it was yesterday, going, you know, maybe it went out too, a little too hard. Maybe it was a little bit too fearful. Well, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, you know what scares me more? It's not even that Trump scares me. It's the people that support him that actually scare me. When I watch him at these rallies mm. and they are all amped up and they are starting to yell, you know, whoever it is, lock her up or lock him up. You know, it's those type of narratives and that type of sort of ingrained sense of what they want out of their government is what I find truly frightening. Well, maybe they want uh, some results because it seems they, and this is where we can start to uh, get into interpretation of the Trumpian phenomenon and the rise or ascendancy of populism. A lot of disaffected people out there. What's interesting, when you talked about, uh, you know, the race card, which seems to inform a lot of the narrative here uh, in that tweet you just read, last hour, Warren Kinsella, the consultant, was on with us, and uh, he gave the reasons for Trump's appeal in this clip. Give a listen. These, you know, older guys, they feel left behind. They feel forgotten. They feel, you know, the cultural change and the technological change, you know, and loss of jobs, all of those things, they feel like they've been left out. And that's, Donald Trump spoke to them, you know, and he may have been a creep and a bit of a jerk, but he was speaking to them in a way that the Democrats did not. You know, Tom, I've got to ask you, I mean, when he talks about all these disaffected old white guys, I mean, 60 plus million people voted for the dude. They're not all angry white guys, are they? No, um, if you so if you if, yeah if you look at the uh, the, the demographics, it's more likely to be high income people than low income people who are voting for the Republicans and voted for Trump. So that story is not completely true. However, uh, it, it it's it is fascinating in and of itself that it's become such a powerful story because um, you know there definitely was there definitely has been um, you know wage stagnation uh, loss of you know, of jobs in smaller towns. You know, this is this is a narrative that we've all seen here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, wages today are not a whole lot better than they were in the '70s in this province. Uh, so we've seen this, and the ch- I think the challenge that where the Democrats have fallen down. That's why I say they've really got to dig deep and think about what their plan is. How do they reconnect with people? Is uh, you know trying to get some hope back for people in small towns, people who are in their 50s or 60s, don't have a good job or don't have the good job they once had. That is a very, very disempowering thing. And it speaks to both uh, this idea, this narrative of economic loss and of status loss. Uh, I am not a believer that those are two separate things. I think those are combined and you cannot unbundle those things. Uh, And so, um, you know, Obama gave that hope when he first ran and won, mm. uh, because there was a sense like anything was possible, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Uh, but then kind of lost it by not being tremendously different. And I think there was a real downer feeling at the end of that. All right. Uh, well, yeah, he was representative of the entrenched establishment. Yeah. Interesting, though, when you talk about uh, the psychology of the people who might 
have been uh, disenfranchised, the forgotten men and women, so The to deplorables. Speak. The deplorables, yeah, which is interesting because Friday night at the Monk debate, Steve Bannon, who came into town amidst uh, much sound and fury, actually embraced that term, uh, you know, and wore like a badge of honor. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when he talked about Trump uh, boasting that he's a nationalist, Economic nationalism. Is that a bad thing, Michael Diamond? You know, I mean, do, do voters think it's a bad thing? Do voters think that somebody who's talking about bringing jobs back, reopening coal mines, even if these things are never going to happen, we know they resonate with people. And why do they resonate with people? Because they're tired. They're, they're upset. They're scared that there aren't jobs left for their kids. A lot of people were really shocked that Hillary Clinton lost uh, the uh white female vote. Uh, And it wasn't that surprising to me because these are folks who are more concerned about Donald Trump's message of jobs than Hillary Clinton's message of let's make history together. And uh, it it seems, you know, sensible to me that people would vote with their concerns in mind, not with their gender. Well, yet I'm kind of perplexed because uh, when you see the stats in Trump, I mean, the times that he has been talking about the economy, boasting about, you know, black unemployment is at its lowest level historically. Hispanic same thing. Uh, job creation is there and blah, blah. And yet uh, blacks and Hispanics tend to almost by default vote for the Dems. There seems to be a disconnect there. Uh, why is that? Why do they continue to go along with the Dems if they're being better served by the Republicans in this instance? I think that there's a there's sort of a series of entrenched values and things that and sort of narratives that they have grown up with. And, you know, it was interesting when you said that about the the economy, and uh, I think Obama was in Florida, of all places, when he said, you know, Trump is boasting about the economy, but let's remember which administration set that up for him. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, the Democrats are starting to use some of these 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 narratives that the Republicans are, in a sense, sometimes ignoring, sometimes, sometimes jumping on. But as far as the ethnic vote, I guess you could call it that, uh, they've traditionally been um, uh, leaned more Democrat, and I think that's just been the case for decades. And some of it's 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 legacy voting. Some, of, you know, obviously it's the way you know their parents voted, and maybe they just don't really believe that even though that this uh, Republican president is talking about jobs, maybe they're just. I think he they just feel that it's just jobs for his buddies, jobs for the rich elite. So I don't think that they find uh, much empathy or or truth in those narratives. Or is it a rejection of the status quo and some of the things, you know, culturally that become important? Uh, also, like ensuring there will be religious freedom. Uh, you know, free speech is a big issue as well. And this is something that uh, a lot of, boy, I hate to use the term, but it seems applicable. The elites just don't kind of get. They're on their own mount up there on both coasts and preaching down to if they deign to come down and even recognize the great unwashed. You think there's a part of that that's uh, still resonant for, you know, those people aspiring to belong to the middle class are worried about their futures in the heartland, Michael. Absolutely, and they watch news broadcasts that, that are generally from Washington or, or New York or Los Angeles, and they're not seeing people that look, look or like sound yeah. or, or, or have life experiences similar to them. It's, it's these coastal elites, as you say, and there's nothing wrong with being a coastal elite. I, I would uh, think it would be a very comfortable and nice lifestyle. But uh, when, when you have national news broadcasts that don't represent folks, and, and I'm not talking about ethnic diversity, I'm talking about economic diversity, educational diversity, regional diversity, uh, you have really out of an out-of-touch broadcast. That's why if you look at 2004, when George W. Bush was reelected, almost every uh, broadcaster on CNN was shocked by that result. And he, he got, at the time, it was the most votes anyone had ever received. He got a majority of the votes, something that Bill Clinton failed to do twice. And uh, CNN was just 
perplexed at how did this happen. Well, there's a big country in between uh, their two headquarters. Well, let me ask Tom Parkin here very quickly. Uh, now, you're obviously an avowed uh, social democrat. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that fit hand in glove with populism? Yeah, but they, you know, they really haven't got it. That's, uh, you know, to me, that's the core problem with the Democrats right now is they're not a populist party by any means. They're, they're not, they're not appealing to the person who's in Wichita or the person who's in Stratford, Ontario, uh, or, you know, the, the, as the liberals didn't hear. I mean, the liberals got white. So you can almost appreciate the Trumpian appeal. Yes, but it's turned, in my mind, it's turned the wrong way because it's a destructive appeal. It's a, and it's combined with, a, you know, an ugly racist element and tax cuts for the rich. That doesn't make any sense. It's, a, it's, 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 it's against things like trying to have a healthcare system. So, the, you know, to me, I mean, Tommy Douglas was the classic Canadian populist. Uh, he... He went headlong against the uh, the power elite of this country to try and win. He took a doctor's strike to try and win uh, health care. And this is not, you know, populism is not a, it can be right. It has right and it has left variants. Right now, the, the right variant is very strong in the United States. Bernie Sanders had an attempt to create a left variant in the United States. We see that same thing happening in Britain with Corbyn, a, a left variant of populism, uh, where it's very much, you know, about uh, trying to regain popular trust, rebuild the democracy, rebuild public services. It's different than right populism, but it's still, it's still trying to, you know, m- change the elite system. And that's, and, and I don't, th- this is why I think unless the Democrats can, can regain some of that, they don't have to be full Bernie, but they have to understand the emotion and the need because some people are really desperate out there, mm. and, and, and they need opportunities. And when you sit in Wichita and you watch the planes go overhead, and you're, nothing changes in your town. Your, your real estate never goes up. No job ever comes in except for you know, the, the, the Walmart. Yeah, it's a bit of a grim existence, and that's not. It, it's going to feed some resentment. And where do, what do they have to bind them together? Do they, have, they don't have a universal public education system like mm-hmm. we do. They don't have a universal health care system like we do. So what is it that binds them together? It, it kind of leaves like the military um, and Well, or they media. cast their hope with you know, a, a candidate like Trump. Well, he spoke to them. He spoke you know, to them. Like, uh, and if you look at... But is it really helping them? Guess people, well, well, getting, there's two variants they, in they, this they one. Showed but up people vote emotionally. I think that people vote more with their hearts and sometimes than their heads. And when, you know, Michael, you hit on a really good point, their the relatability. You know, men and women did not relate to Hillary Clinton. And the narrative that she put out, even her campaign slogan was, I'm with her. I'm with her for what? I don't know. But it was more about breaking the glass ceiling. ceiling. Whereas Trump was, I am for you. Right, right. And very much like what Doug Ford was, help is on the way. So those those emotional narratives speak to people. And also, even if we just go back to the, the from and Bannon debate, you know, here you have, and we're talking about relatability and people, you know, like people that look like like them. And you know when you look talk about the look of cultural elites or political elites no matter what side of the aisle they are. You know even when I watch that online, you know here you have Steve Bannon coming out looking looking like every man. Yeah, he was cleaned up. He had something nice. He was kind of nice frumpy. Was but it he was kind tucked? of frumpy. Um, more so, sort of not really. Um, and then you had David Frum come up in a made-to-measure suit, looking fine. And then I just thought, you look so unrelatable that I don't even need to hear either of your arguments to know why populism is, you know, gaining acceptance. And at the end of that debate, apparently, it was it, it turned out to be dead even. But even why Steve Bannon was able to change people's minds. So. 
You're right. Even in that room. Even in that room. And you're right. The Democrats need to have somebody who is relatable, who looks like the people that they want to give hope to, and cannot look too highfalutin or too I mean, Obama was, you know, yes, we can change and hope. Uh, you know, even yeah, even, but that's sloganeering. You know what? It's all sloganeering. Well, except you know when Bannon Bannon pointed out, he was a great orator. When yeah, Yeah. fine. But when Bannon pointed (laughs) out on Friday, I thought this was very instructive. You know, who betrayed the middle class or those seeking to uh, get to it? The party of Davos. When he said that, yeah, that's that's both parties. Yeah, and that's both parties. So it's elitism, and uh, this is where populism finds resonance. We'll come back. We've got more topics worthy of discussion with our panel: Alyssa Freeman, Michael Diamond, Tom Parkin, on the Oakley Show, Global News. News Radio 640 Toronto. They'll fight Trump, and I, I think he's taken us 100% in the wrong direction. I'm doing like what Trump says, we're trying to make America great again. So I'm out here voting for the Republicans. Those guys, they tend to be, you know, guys who don't have post-secondary education, kind of older, who are angry, you know, they feel left behind, they feel forgotten, and uh, guys like Donald Trump appeal to them.